right, well, we're glad you're here today. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. You know, in life, we're faced with many decisions, so many decisions that it can be overwhelming. Did you know there's such a thing as decision fatigue? Are y'all aware of that? Decision fatigue. It's a, it's a real thing that j- just the constant barrage of questions and forks in the road and paths and things we have to decide on, it can absolutely just wear us down. But you know, some decisions that we are called on to make are, are really inconsequential. You know what I mean? Do you want crinkle fries or curly fries? That, that kind of thing. I mean, it, it affects your meal, but maybe not, you know, your eternity or anything. But there are those decisions that have very far-reaching consequences. And uh, one of the ways that the Bible pictures the Christian life or all of life is as a path. It's a path or a road. And along those roads, we have to make decisions when we come to the different forks in the road. We must choose one. It reminded me of uh, Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. Listen to these lines from that poem, The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Thinking about that begs the question. At the end of our lives, when we face the Lord, Will we be glad of the road or the path that we have walked? In many ways, the book of Philippians that we've been studying for these months is showing us the path that leads to lasting joy, the path that Jesus marked out, the path that Jesus cleared and made for us. And to be sure, it is certainly the road less traveled. Along the path that Jesus marked out, It is not a clear highway. As the road less traveled, it is often littered with briars and rocks and things that might seem to harm us. But it's the path of Jesus. It is the path that ends at the destination of our salvation. So our teaching today comes from Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. I want to back up and read one verse where we left off last week. So we'll read verses 8 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2. And being found in appearance as a man, that is Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want us to consider this passage from three different angles, if you will. The first angle or aspect of this passage that we might take note of is the poetic Christology. The poetic Christology. Actually, if you back up to verse 5, verses 5 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2, 
are often referred to as a Christ psalm or a hymn of Christ. That is, that there is a poetic rhythm and brevity about it, such that many who study the Bible say this has the appearance of being an early Christian creed or maybe a poem or a song that would have been widespread among the Christian communities, many of whom were illiterate people, and so they learned much of it through orality, that is, the telling. And so they would have songs and uh, hymns, spiritual songs, poems, and creeds that people would memorize so that they could pass on the teaching of Christianity. So many believe it was a psalm or a hymn. While we can't know that for sure, we do know this, that these verses in relatively few words and syllables do convey what is called high Christology. High Christology. Now, I'm going to give you some big words. Some of y'all like these words. You like to take notes, and you want something new. So write this one down, Christology. Christology is the branch of studying the things of God and studying the Bible of theology that deals with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so here, while we don't know if it's a psalm, or a hymn, there is high Christology in view. And here's some reasons why I think we can say Philippians 2 teaches a high view of Jesus Christ. Number one, it makes clear in what we looked at last week that Jesus is not merely or only a human being. That is that before he came through the incarnation and took on flesh, that Jesus was in the very form of God is what it says. He is God. He was God. He was with God from the beginning. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, normally, the phrase high Christology means that we're saying about Jesus that he is eternal and divine. A low Christology would say, no, he's just a a dude. He's just a human. Ah, he was a great teacher. Man, he was popular. He had some really pithy sayings, but low Christology says about the nature of Jesus, he was just or merely human. But we need to see this. We need to see this. And we saw it last week that in the humbling or humiliation of Jesus, he lowered himself. He had and occupied the right hand of God. He was with God. He was God from the beginning. And he decided in counsel with the Father that it would be not good to stay there in that place, but it would be good to come among us and to carry out his part of God's redemptive plan. So we see that Jesus' divine nature secured for him and and offered him the highest place, but he came to the lowest place. Another reason we could say that there is poetic high Christology in this passage is because it begins to reveal the moral beauty and excellence of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came and took on human flesh, and he was like as we are, subject to the same kinds of temptations. He lived in the same kind of world that is broken and fractured and messed up that we live in. But he did not sin. He carried out God's will perfectly. Perfect obedience is what he had. It says that he was obedient to God even to the point of death on a cross. Now, all of this is important. This is not just uh, high theological ramblings. This is to the very point that is being made here that Jesus accomplished. He forged a path through the woods that the first Adam could not, that we did not. In other words, he clears a path to bring us to God, and he clears it in his humanity. 
He came and humbly obeyed God, even to the point of death on the cross. We also see this great, humble love and care of God in Jesus. That's why I say it's moral excellence. Not only did he obey God perfectly, he loved us so much. He shows us perfect love. In him, we know love. We see love in Jesus supremely. The third reason I say that there is high Christology in this passage is because of what verses 9 through 11, our focal text says to us. That the cross and the tomb were not the end of Jesus, but that because of his perfect obedience and his willing to go and take on our punishment and our penalty for sin, that God exalts him. He raises him, and he doesn't just raise him from the dead bodily, though he does do that. We see many days later that Jesus actually ascends into the heaven and he is given back a higher place, if you will. And he is given this name above all names. He has now earned our salvation through his obedience. Jesus willingly humbles himself, but in verse 9, the focus goes away from what Jesus did to what God does for Jesus because of his humility. And so we see the arc of Jesus' life, which is he is high and exalted, and he comes down to the lowest place. And because he humbles himself to the lowest place, that God raises him up to the highest place. God exalts Jesus. And so... This is high Christology. And it teaches us and tells us that Jesus is the supreme ruler of all of creation. God has given him that place. We need to see that Jesus' humility wasn't just about suffering as if that was necessarily the main thing, but it was suffering on the way to exaltation and to joy. So the first thing we do need to notice in this is this poetic Expression of the high view of Jesus Christ in his humanity and in his divinity. The second way that we need to view this passage is, I think, and maybe this is the main thing actually, is as a treatise of practical theology. Practical theology. Now, some people believe the theology is just pie in the sky, God talk, but there is a branch of theology called practical theology. It's Where the rubber meets the road, if you will. It's the application. And really, that is what's in view in Philippians chapter 2. We are invited into that story. And Paul is teaching the Philippian church to live this way. Remember what we saw last week? Have this mind or this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he's rehearsing these things, whether it's a hymn or a psalm or a creed or a poem or whatever, he's telling them these things to say, this is the path that you're to walk as Christians. This is the path of Jesus that we've been invited onto. Have this same disposition and mindset about you. Have this same view of life that Jesus had that humility is the right path. And that when humility and humbling ourselves hurts and people take advantage of us and it costs us when we're following Jesus and we're threatened or harmed or some even killed as Jesus was. Though none will be killed as Jesus was. That we can trust God in that. 
have this same mindset in you that the path of humility, there are briars and thorns and pits, but they will not stop you ultimately, that God will exalt you just like he did Jesus. Now listen, the Bible is very clear about this teaching of humility. God honoring humility is the path of life that God honors. You know, it's amazing to think that the Bible says that God actively opposes those who are proud, trying to exalt themselves and step on other people. But God honors the God-honoring humble life. He did it in Jesus' life, and the same is true for us. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus had gone to a party, and, and he was an observer of people. And he looks around, and he sees how all of these people are going to the best seat in the house. The best seat in the house. They sought the place of honor at that party. And he tells a parable in Luke 14, verses 8 through 10. Let me just read it. He says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you will proceed to occupy the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place. So that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what Jesus taught to people. He said, don't seek the highest place because that is certainly going to lead you to overestimate yourself. And then someone has to come to you and humble you. And that could be an embarrassing and shameful thing. And so he says, go about your life seeking the lowest place and allow the one who invited people to the party to lift you up. Let God exalt you. You humble yourself. That's what Jesus teaches. We see this dynamic at work in Jesus' own life and in his teaching that God vindicates the humble. Jesus willingly died. He endured abuse and scorn and torture from others in a humble way. He did not even hardly speak a word. He didn't rail and curse at those who harmed him. No, he trusted God. He trusted that the Father would vindicate him in the sight of all after the cross. And that is exactly what Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says happened. That God raised him up. And exalted him and brought him up to the highest place. God chooses to vindicate those who are humble. And Jesus now is exalted. He has a higher position and place of authority than those religious leaders who rejected his teaching. Who rebuked him for his miracles. Who spoke out against him and ultimately sought his demise. Jesus not only is exalted above the religious rulers who sought his execution, he is exalted above the Roman authorities and powers who actually had power in this world to end his life, like Pilate and those Roman soldiers who did their work against him at Calvary. Jesus now occupies a place of higher political power, if you will. God raised him up to that place. And the teaching of Philippians. As Paul writes to this church, Paul 
suffering, imprisonment because of the name of Christ just for being obedient to following and preaching Jesus. And to a church now in Philippi that is being harmed by others because of their association with Paul and with Jesus, they are being threatened and they are scared to death about the pain that they are about to endure or possibly already enduring. And this teaching about Jesus and the example of his life comes to a people who are being harassed because of Jesus. And he says, that is the path of Jesus. He walked it, and you can walk it too. It's a teaching that comes to those that down through the ages have endured the wrath of those that hate the teaching and preaching of Jesus. Hey, listen, that kind of thing is happening in our day. People being killed for their faith. It happens in our day when people don't want to hear about this Jesus stuff. Or they call you a hater or a bigot because you're simply following the way of the divine son of God. And it hurts. And it costs. And we face those things. And nobody wants to be afflicted. Nobody wants to be drugged through the mud. And we'll come to those things and we're challenged and we need to hear this, that that is the way of Jesus. That along the path to glory and eternity, there will be suffering. Remember what we saw a couple of weeks ago for it has been granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake. That is the path. That is what you'll find along the road, just like Jesus did. But the last thing we need to see in this passage is what I call potent eschatology. So we have poetic Christology. Man, y'all got some good words today. Poetic Christology. What was point two? Practical theology and potent eschatology. What is eschatology? It's, it's end times. That's what it is. It's a study of the end times. And there is this powerful or striking or potent statement that leaves some things unsaid, but what it does say is very powerful as we think about following the path that Jesus has laid out for us, that he cleared for us on the way to joy and glory. Look at what it says. It says that there is coming a day where the name of Jesus will be spoken and it will be so feared and revered that every knee will bow at that name. Many people use the name Jesus as a preface to a curse today. But there's coming a day when that name will be spoken with a holy hush. And then when people hear the name of Jesus, not, not just Christian people, but all people, and not just people, look at what it says. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Who? Whose knees are going to bow? Well, those in heaven. Who is that? Well, I think it's the holy angels, the multitudes of heavenly beings. And there are realms and realms and multitudes of them of all different stripes and, and varieties and kinds. And when that name of Jesus is spoken or blasted from the trumpet, that every angelic being in the heavenly places will fall down. Every knee will hit the ground. 
And it says those in heaven. It says those on the earth. What does that mean? Those on the earth, when the name of Jesus comes or is spoken, their knees are going to bow. Well, those on the earth, that's human beings, by the way, who are alive at some point. What is that point? I think it has in view the second coming of Jesus. Because the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again to this world, to this earth. The parousia, the second coming, the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to rule and reign over the earth. He's already the king. He's been given the crown and the throne. But that inauguration day hasn't finally come yet. But there's coming a day when Jesus breaks the skies wide open. And I don't know all about how that pans out, but I know that's what the Bible teaches. And Jesus comes and every person on the earth is going to fall down in reverent fear. And bow to Jesus. And it says, not only that, those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth. What is that? Well, it could mean the rebellious spirits, demons who are in chains, so to speak. It could be the underworld. That's a way a Bible would speak about these things. But also, maybe, here's what I think it probably is. Under the earth speaks of the realm of the dead. When you think about someone dies, they're buried, they go under the surface of the earth. They're in the earth under the earth, that is, those who have died, all who have died, will come before Jesus and they will bow the knee. All of humanity, but not just humanity, all created beings, what we might call angels, people, both the living and the dead, and even those fallen rebellious spirits who continue even to this day to oppose Jesus Christ actively. One day, King Jesus will stand up and he will rule and reign and every being will bow. Not only will their knees bow, but it says their tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue will confess and say that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. He is Lord. He's Lord whether we say it or not. And I suspect if you're in this room today, at some level at least, you're, you're, you have said that, that you have said that Jesus Christ is Lord. You have confessed that. When you came to Christ, maybe you're here today and you've never done that. What I would say to you is Jesus Christ is Lord. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But in that day, that final day, when all the paths of life, and really there are only two, there's the godly path and there's the rebellious path, they all are going to terminate at the same place. They're going to terminate at the feet of Jesus. But one path will be up on the mountaintop, exalted with Jesus, and one will be down low because they have refused Jesus. So when every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord, there is something particular in view here, that God's judgment is made present 
that it comes and everybody, everybody claims that Jesus is Lord. But listen to this. For some, for those who are on the path that Jesus has marked out, the path of humility, they will say that Jesus is Lord and they will sing it with great cheer and joy because their final salvation has come. But those who have chosen the highway, the road that most people are running down, the way of ease that goes with the flow and says, you know, I don't really know about all that stuff. Uh, you know, the Lord will pan it all out at the end. Those people will certainly acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. But they will do so like the team that has just been defeated. When the buzzer rings and calls an end to the game, everybody on the court acknowledges what the final score says. There is one winner. There is a team of winners and there is a team of losers. But all acknowledge the final outcome. I want to be on the winning team. I want to acknowledge in this life and live my life in such a way that my life is on the path that leads to eternal joy and glory. Even if it means in this life what looks like a few defeats. I was asking uh, Brandon this morning about, I said, I've been hearing good things about the Valley Springs ball teams that they went to the regional tournaments and, and did some winning, right? Runner-ups, is that right? Both teams, congratulations. And I said, well, what does that mean now? Is that the end of it? And, and he said, no, that's not the end of it. They're going to state. They're going to the finals. And he said, not telling anybody how to coach, Jerry. But uh, if I was coach, he said, what I'd be saying is, hey, you don't view what just happened as a defeat. It was just part of the path on the road to becoming victorious, state champions. A defeat in this life is as nothing if we attain eternal glory. Along the path of following Jesus, there will be hard things. Jesus endured a cross, and he calls us as his followers to take up our cross too and follow him. Not because he wants our harm, but because that is the path that God honors. And it leads to the highest place, eternal joy, eternal glory. I love this one. I think it's Peter that writes it. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. So what shall we say to these things, my friend? What shall we do about the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord? And he will one day rule and reign, and all those who are his enemies who have refused to bow the knee in this life, they will be cast away out of the eternal joy of the kingdom. It is the right path. Like Frost wrote, 
somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the less traveled one, and that has made all the difference. Somewhere in ages and ages hence, will you be able to look back at your life and say, I was on the right path, the path that Jesus marked out. I followed Jesus regardless of the cost, and now I'm seated with him in heavenly places. Or will in ages and ages hence, we look back and say, why? When I came to the fork in the road, did I choose the easy way that in the end leads to loss and death? Here's what I would say we should do to the, about these things. Bow the knee to Jesus and confess now that Jesus is Lord and make him your Lord. Whosoever surely meaneth me. That's what that song this morning. And it's a little bit of King James talk. Refers back to the scripture saying, whosoever will may come. The path is open to you now. But realizing that you have one life to live. How many opportunities will you get to circle back to that path before it is too late? And so whosoever will may come, surely that means me. Yes, it does. It means that I need to choose the path of Jesus. That is the path of humility, giving myself to God for his purposes and offering myself to the world on his behalf. And it leads to victory. If you're not on that path today, the fork lays before you. Choose that path. It is the only wise choice. Get on the right path that leads to glory. Follow Jesus today. What do we do with this teaching? If we're already Christians, stay on the path when it gets hard. It's hard. It's hard. It will cost you temporal things, but you will gain an eternal weight of glory. Get on the path of Jesus. Stay on the path of Jesus, the way, friends, of humility. Would you bow with me today? I can't make a decision for your life it's your life. But I can tell you, these are not blind paths. The Bible, in essence, gives us an aerial view, almost like a Google Earth view, of the two paths that diverge in the woods. It doesn't show us all of the terrain, the hills and the valleys along each path, but it does show us the destination where they lead. So today, I would just say to you, if your heart is soft, if the Spirit is knocking at the door of your heart, saying, get on the path with Jesus. He came for you. Do that. Do that. Trust Jesus. Repent of your sins self-exaltation and become
become a humble follower of Jesus. Join that path with each of us who are here today that are witnesses to the path that it is full of joy. Yes, it is full of hardships too, but we know where it leads. It leads to the highest place where we'll be seated and ruling and reigning with Jesus is what the Bible teaches. So do that today. Christians, let me just encourage you to get your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the pioneer of the path that we're on. Look to his cross, but also look to his exaltation. And consider how God has lifted him up and honored him supremely. And consider this, that the Bible says, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Your place is secure. You need not fear. You need not worry about the things of this life. God knows your needs. He cares for you. He knows right where you are. And he's bringing you, he's bringing you to an exalted place, to a high place, to a heavenly place, to an eternal joy. will never diminish, spoil, or fade. No one can ever take that from you, no matter what they do or say in this life. So I want to call you to trust him again today. Renew your faith. Let your strength, that is really the strength of Christ in you, well up. Steady your feet. Steady your knees for the journey ahead. Father, today we are indeed humbled as we think about all of the bad things in this life, the sins that we've committed, our unworthiness. But Lord, today we cling to this fact that Jesus came and he obeyed. and He is the one charting the path and we're with him. We're trusting in him to bring us to you. Trusting in grace alone as we walk this life by faith alone. So help us to rest securely in that. By your spirit, would you speak to our hearts in the particular ways that we need to hear? We want to see Jesus lifted up in the eyes of our hearts today. So I pray that you would do that for us. And now and forever, we will give you praise and honor through the name of Jesus, our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for your attention today. We're so glad that you've joined us. I wanna just encourage you with this, that I I normally uh, just hang around up here for a little while uh, to visit with folks. And if you've made a decision today or maybe you have a question about something today, we'd love to visit with you more about that as we walk this path together, all right? Y'all go in the blessing of Jesus Christ today.